I was thinking about September 11th, 2001. It's for, for many of us, for all of us who are alive, uh, it's a day that we will not forget, and it's a day that's etched into our history. By God's grace, there are only a handful of days that are like it in our history. Um, but it is a day, like many, where we know exactly where we were and what we were doing as it unfolded, as we first learned of it. I remember well where I was on, on 9-11 and how I saw it unfold, and I'll, I'll not forget the images of planes flying into those iconic buildings. Moments later, those same buildings crumbling to the ground and thinking, my God, how many people are still in there? Our, our minds hardly know what to do when things like that unfold before us. They're the kinds of tragedies that can cause us to lose hope. They're the kinds of tragedies that can scare us. They're the kinds of events that turn worlds upside down, forever changing the course of histories, individual and collective. And they remind us anew of the brokenness and the evil that afflict our world. So it can be quite confusing to know how to handle the darkness of the age in which we live. But there was an interview that I once heard with Mr. Rogers, yes, that Mr. Rogers, that I found helpful on this topic. Listen, he loves Jesus, and he was a childhood staple of mine, so I paid attention. Someone had asked Mr. Rogers how he thought parents should handle explaining difficult things that they see and or hear in the news and how to make sense of that. And Mr. Rogers said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words and I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in the world. So on 9-11, there were scores of people running away from ground zero, rightly so. But there were also hundreds of men and women who were running towards it. Running into burning buildings to save as many as they could. Putting an arm around someone who was covered in soot and dust, crying, having had their world shattered. Not thinking about themselves, but thinking about those who needed their help. Risking their lives, many of them, as we know, giving their lives for others. Now, many of these men and women were police officers and firefighters and first responders, but many of them were ordinary people, people like you and me. And they had one thing in common. They were all people who saw others in need and did whatever they could to help. These men and women are seen as heroes, and they are even though they would not identify themselves that way. So if we look hard at the world around us and at the tragedies that befall our world, and there are plenty, we'll realize that Mr. Rogers was right. There is no evil so dark that the light of Christ cannot and does not pierce it. There are always those who run into the mess, ready to give of themselves in both big and small ways, to make things better for someone else. There's something deep within us that understands that those behaviors are special 
and we rightly applaud it. We have been wired, my friends, to recognize the divine in one's service to others. In a world that disciples us to look out for number one, we are drawn to those who put the needs of, of, of others ahead of themselves. Why? Why are we that way? Well, in the passage that Seth had read from Philippians 2, the passage we're looking at primarily tonight, we really do get an idea as to why we are drawn to those who serve and those who sacrifice. Acts of service, no matter how big and no matter how small, show us the heart of God and the love of Christ. Do you know that acts of service is one of the five love languages. So when my wife and I got married almost 20 years ago, I think we had to do this exercise that helped us identify love languages. Anybody else done that? Or read the book or whatever? So there are people that are sitting around you right now (laughs) who show love and receive love by acts of service. There's one right up here. That's my number one. It blows away all the other ones that are available. I don't even know what the other four are. Who cares? And if we want to see love, service, and sacrifice, we need to look no further than the life and the death of Jesus Christ put on display in Philippians 2. See, we live in a world that tells us that greatness is measured by how many servants one has. How many people are waiting on you? How many people can you afford to do this and that? And yet in Matthew 23, Jesus tells us that the greatest are measured by how they serve others. We live in an upside-down world when we follow Christ. So here's the thing about serving, though. It's kind of what I like to call a junk drawer word. So a junk drawer, everybody in this room, I would imagine, has a junk drawer in their house that has everything one could imagine in it. Likewise, junk drawer words are words that where every, just about every definition imaginable is attached to it. And service is one of those things. Serve, serving, service. So how one defines serving and why one serves really does vary from person to person. Some of us in this room believe that service is only about doing the big things. Whether we're part of those big things or whether we're watching other people do those big things, we're talking about hard labor. We're talking about building stuff. We're talking about dirty knees. We're talking about huge amounts of time and sacrifice. That's service. And then there are others of us in this room who believe that service is a program in church. There's this one pastor who really has a heart for it. And whenever serving needs to be done, dude is put on AP, you know, he's he's put on a patrol and he gathers up people to be able to do a service day. But if we don't serve in that context, it doesn't really count. That's not really service because you didn't do it that way with those people in that way. And then there are others of us who serve because of how it makes us feel. It gives a sense of meaning to our lives. Now service, to be fair, it can be big and hard and it could be measurable and it ought to exist within the church body And service can make us feel good. But gospel-centered service is not limited to those characteristics. 
Today, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about serving in relationship to Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're going to look at what Jesus said about serving and how he served others. We're going to look at what serving others means for those of us who gladly would follow him. And my hope is that we'll feel freed up to believe that we actually can be disciples who serve and that make gospel-centered service a part of our day-to-day lives. So what do we mean by the title of this message, which is Disciples Serve? Well, there are actually about six or seven words for serve or servant in the Bible. Some of them are Greek. Some of them are Hebrew. The one, first one we're going to look at today is a Greek word, doulos. Some of you may be familiar with that word. It's a word that means slave or bondservant. Did he just say slave? Yes. We don't have time today to fully unpack what Jesus and Bible authors meant by slave, especially as it relates to our own connotations of this word. But at a high level, I do think that it's helpful for us to know and insightful for us to know that slaves in Jesus' day were not unwilling. They were not associated with any particular racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic group. They were oftentimes more educated and successful than their owners, having slaves themselves. So today, let's breathe easy when you hear that word in this context. Doulos or bond servant is used over 120 times in the Bible. It is the most common use of the word in Scripture when speaking of a servant. At the beginning of this letter, Paul actually addresses himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. In the context as it's used here, doulos means to be devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. That's a near literal translation, if you look at it, of how we read verse 4 in that passage. But beginning in verse 3 in chapter 2, we read again, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what do we learn about being a servant in Philippians 2? Well, according to verse 3 of this passage, a servant counts others more significant than his or her self. They give up their own rights for the sake of others, according to verse 4. Verse 7 tells us that a servant makes less of themselves. Why? So that others can be more. This isn't masochism. This is about the exaltation of others. Verse 8 tells us that a servant serves and obeys regardless of the cost to his or herself. And verses 5 and 6 tell us that a servant looks to Christ as the ultimate example. 
A bondservant, my friends, is who Christ became for us. He was a servant to his Father's will for our good and for the Father's glory. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus crying great drops of blood, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But what? Not my will, but yours be done. Bond servanthood. Staring the cross and the full weight of sin in the face, saying, not my will, but yours be done. We are called, brothers and sisters, in light of that, to be bondservants unto Christ in response. Meaning, we submit our own wills and interests to him. It leads us to our second definition of serve. It's a Greek word, latruo, meaning literally worship. Our response to Christ having first served us, first and foremost, is worship. Not just on Sundays. Now, we, interestingly, we, we call these gatherings worship services. Two words that essentially mean the same thing. So welcome to our worship worship. Romans chapter 12 tells us that Latruo is the appropriate response in view of God's mercy on us. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, it says. This is your true and proper worship. Latruo. So we see Latruo, service that is worship modeled in Jesus' life. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he responded, worship the Lord your God and serve Latruo, him only. Additionally, we'll find Hebrew words in the Old Testament translated as serve, but actually meaning worship. The first one's in the Ten Commandments. God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Worship them. Latruo them. You shall not do that. Joshua 24, famous coffee cup verse, right? Maybe hanging on your wall on one of those board and brush things. It says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Latruo whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the word Latruo. We will worship him. Here's the point. Christ has served us to the point of death. Therefore, we are to serve, worship him. And we are to serve one another. That's the command if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like then for we who are worshipers, for we who are bondservants and disciples of Christ Jesus to serve others? It's a third word used for serving others. Another Greek word, diakoneo. It means to provide the things necessary to sustain life. Think about one who waits on guests. It's very much personal, person to person. 
We see this definition of serve used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. It reads, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve diakoneo, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Doulos, latruo, diakoneo. Three words, all translated as serve or servant. And all of them, interestingly, bound together for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 25, actually, we get a beautiful picture as to how all three of those words kind of fit together. Those words and those definitions, how they all fit together. Beginning in Matthew 25, verse 31, it reads, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see it? Christ, in this passage, serves us to the point of death, becoming a bondservant to his father's will and making us righteous. We the righteous in response, serve others, providing the things that are necessary for life. Through our service to others, Christ is worshipped. He is served. Latruo. Gospel-centered service to others may mean giving one's life. But it could also mean, and very often does mean, a cold drink a bite of food, a kind word, or a friendly visit. So as we leave this place tonight and we head into a new week, ask yourself, who can I be praying for? And then can I challenge you to actually pray for them right then and there? Not just tell them that you will, but actually do it? Who, who can I be opening the door for? Who am I going to let pull in front of me when traffic is all jammed up and that dude's trying to come off the ramp and it's my turn? Who in my life could use a night off from cooking dinner or doing the dishes or folding laundry? Which neighbor needs their garbage cans brought up because they get home late? 
which neighbor needs their driveway shoveled because they foolishly believe that winter is over and they have put their snowblower away. We are to be worshipers, my friends. We are to be bond servants. We are to help provide the things necessary to sustain life to our fellow men. We are gospel-centered servants. We are disciples. Now, if you're like me, you should be asking yourself two questions at this point right now. How in the world are we supposed to do these things? How are we supposed to be these people? This all sounds great, and it sounds right, but how do we do that? Last week, Jonathan laid before us two words and ideas that are helpful. The two words are imperative and indicative. So whenever a command or imperative is given, the ability to do that thing is rooted in what Christ has first done for us, the indicative. Meaning, you and I are not simply imitators of Christ in the energy of our own flesh. Rather, we are vessels by which Christ's love and life flow in us and through us. So for every believer, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. That's Galatians 2.20. That ought to be your lifers if it's not. So what are we to actually do then? We abide. To abide means that we rest in Christ and allow him to hold us. We allow him to do in and through us what we cannot do on our own. You're right to think that it's impossible to do these things. But it's Christ who's doing those things in and through you. Ask Sandy if it was her energy and her will and her smarts that did these things. Friends, abiding in Christ is the overarching posture of the believer in all the areas of our lives, including service. In John 15, Jesus tells us that if we don't abide or depend upon him, we can do nothing. And when he says nothing, he means nothing. And by nothing, he means nothing of eternal consequence. Nothing that will actually impact the kingdom. He's not talking about you won't be able to walk from here to there. He's talking about your walk from here to there will mean nothing in light of eternity. It will be burned up apart from Christ's power and life in and through you. And yet, many of us choose to operate in the energy of our own flesh, of our own ability. We hear a command and immediately we begin thinking, so what do I need to do now? What's the thing? How do I do that? What would it look like if we began trusting less in our own ability to do things that we're commanded to do and begin trusting in Jesus to do those things in and through us. See, friends, the commands that Christ gives are not meant to be burdens or weights that we bear. We don't need to feel inadequate or ill-prepared, nor should we boast in all the stuff that we believe that we have accomplished. Striving in the energy of our own flesh apart from Christ's work in and through us, leads to one of two places. 
We believe that God is disappointed in us and loves us less than the others who are doing things well. So we curl up. We feel defeated, feel burned out. Can I free you up with something tonight? Our service unto others, your service unto others, does not make you righteous. And it does not cause God to love you more. If you are serving because of those reasons, you're missing the point. And you will not get what you're actually going after. The second thing that striving apart from Christ's work in us does is it causes us to believe that God is impressed with us. He owes us big time. All those things we did, he owes us. So we begin judging others, we become critical, and we think way, 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 way too much of ourselves. Operating with a sense of of failure or disappointment and or a sense of arrogance and bravado, on the other hand, is not congruent with the gospel. Christ's love came for us while we were his enemies. Christ's life came into us while we were spiritually dead. What are we going to offer? God does not need us, but he wants us. We are not his employees, and he is not our boss. He is our God and our Father, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our friend. And he is the source of our very life and breath. Paul, when talking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, said it this way, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man or schools built by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you know what the translation for the word everything is? Everything. Martin Luther said something similar and a bit more simply. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So gospel-centered servants are motivated by the gospel. Not duty, not guilt, not shame, not pride or selfish ambition. They serve as an act of worship unto God and out of a spirit-driven compulsion to serve others. Gospel-centered servants make simple daily decisions to be worshipers of Christ and to look to the ordinary, everyday needs of others. They are all around you. They are concerned with the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of those around them. Gospel-centered servants see people as God sees them, made in the image of God, and loves them as God loves them, filled with compassion and grace. Gospel-centered servants use the gifts that God has uniquely given them and allows their service to flow from those gifts. They give of what they have. They give of what God has given. 
gospel-centered servants run into messes, big and small ones, and they find opportunities to serve in both the sacred and the secular spaces. There are people to love and needs to be met wherever one finds themselves. And gospel-centered servants recognize that the light which shines within them in and through their service, shown through their service, belongs to Christ. In 2004, three years after the 9-11 attacks during the war in Iraq, a 20-year-old Wisconsin woman was killed in the line of duty. She was the first National Guard member to die in military combat since World War II, almost 60 years. Her name was Michelle Whitmer. And I didn't know her, but I had the privilege of helping to lead worship for her memorial service. Her service was attended by thousands of people, and there were endless stories shared about this incredible young woman who was loved by everyone who knew her, and whose greatest love was Jesus. A fellow National Guard service member who served with Michelle in Iraq said of her, we will remember how much Michelle loved the Iraqi children, the Iraqi people. Those who a lot of us view as the enemy, she helped. A lot of us view them as the enemy, she helped. See, Michelle served the Iraqi people because that's where God had her then. She helped them in in simple ways, I would imagine. Maybe through a smile when they were afraid. Maybe a reassuring word when they were wondering what was going to happen to their town. Maybe sharing her candy bar or bottle of water with kids. Maybe getting into a game of soccer in the streets. Who knows? But we also know that Michelle served in the greatest of ways. She gave her life for them and for us. See, Michelle understood that Christ's death for her sake and Christ's life within her was all she needed to become a servant of all, even her enemies. Like every disciple, Michelle was called to a life of gospel-centered service. And like all other callings of and commands to a disciple, gospel-centered service begins and ends with God. Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his spirit in us, his spirit flowing to us and through us and unto others, to whomever God has put around you. Spouses, children, Friends, roommates, neighbors, co-workers, schoolmates, people you go to church with, your waiter, your barista, that jerk in front of you in line, or that dude at the gas station. Then, as God leads, we go to our communities, and we go to our nations, and we go to the world. And like all other good things, gospel-centered service finds its perfect end with God getting glory for having done unto us and through us what we never could. 1 Peter chapter 4 says it this way. Whoever serves, let it be as one who serves 
by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Disciples Church, may we serve Christ and may we serve others according to the strength that he gives wherever we find ourselves for his sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Dear God of my end, you have given me a fixed disposition to go forth and spend my life for you. If it be your will, let me proceed in it. And if not, then revoke my intentions. All I want in life is such circumstances as may best enable me to serve you in the world. To this end, I leave all my concerns in thy hand, but let me not be discouraged, for this hinders my spiritual fervency. Enable me to undertake some task for you, for this refreshes and animates my soul, so that I could endure all hardships and labors and willingly suffer for your name. But oh, what a death it is to strive and labor, to be always in a hurry and yet do nothing. Time flies and I am of little use. Oh, that I could be a flame of fire in your service, always burning out in one continual blaze. Fit me for singular usefulness in this world. Fit me to exult in distresses of every kind. If they promote the advancement of your kingdom, fit me to quit all hopes of the world's friendship and give me a deeper sense of my sinfulness. Fit me to accept from you any trial that may befall me. Fit me to be totally resigned to the denial of pleasures I desire and to be content to spend my time with you. Fit me to pray with a sense of the joy of divine communion, to find all times happy seasons to my soul, to see my own nothingness and wonder that I am allowed to serve you. Fit me to enter the blessed world where no unclean thing is and to know you are with me 